0: Today is from 1 Peter four twelve through fourteen and five six through eleven. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you are sharing Christ's sufferings, so that you also you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him steadfastness, I'm having a hard time, resist him steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord.
1: So Will and I had a Slack conversation this week where he was asking me kind of which direction was I going in. And what I didn't realize as I told him is that he was going to ask questions that stole all my stuff. So that's great. (laughs) Thanks, Will. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's it's cool to know that you're on the same page with people because then that gives me a lot of confidence (laughs) that y'all are going to get what I'm saying. So that's great. That's great. Thanks, Will. Appreciate that. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, thank you all for being here this morning, those of you that are in the chapel and those of you who are with us online. Uh, extra Torah points to everybody this week. As I said last week, we're going to be talking about pain and suffering. So for actually showing up, which is probably the worst advertising you can do for a church service. So for actually showing up, you all get extra points this week. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of things. We are in the seventh Sunday of Eastertide, which means we only have two more weeks to go of The Easter season here on the church calendar. Next week is Pentecost and then the week after that we start ordinary time which is actually the bulk of the church calendar. That'll last us until I think sometime late in November. Of course as ordinary apprentices of Jesus we value ordinary time here. It's not something we just skip right through but while we're in this season of Easter we want to focus on Easter. We want to focus on resurrection and as I've talked about previously we view Easter and resurrection not as one-time events. Resurrection is something that has happened. Resurrection is something that is happening. And resurrection is something that will continue to happen. And as I said last week, that leads us to sort of an inevitable question. What do we, in light of that fact, what do we as resurrection people do with that? If, if we believe that Christ rose from the dead, if we believe that we are participat- participating in the fruits of that resurrection, and if we believe that one day we too will experience resurrection... How does, how, do we cha- how does that change our lives? How do we live our lives in light of that? What, do, what does that do in terms of our uh, interactions within our community? And what does that do in terms of our interactions outside of our community? Those are the questions that we're sort of playing with this past week and this week as well. And those things, there's many different facets to those questions. There's no one singular sermon that's ever going to answer all of them or series of sermons that can answer all of them. But last week we talked about Living in the secular world as people of faith, as resurrection people. How do we do that effectively? How do we do that well? Because we see a lot of examples of that being done not so well. And what we, the conclusion we came to is that it all centers on relationship. That being a follower of Jesus, being resurrection people, means we care more about other people. We care more about their circumstances, where they're at, where they're coming from, their culture or their views, than we do about being seen to have the correct theological approach. Or the correct faith. That if we enter into relationship with that posture, we're a lot more effective at then explaining who we are and why we do the things that we do. And we make a relationship with Jesus look a lot more attractive to other people. That was last week's conclusion. This week we're going to talk about how we live our lives as resurrected people in light of pain and suffering. Again, a very happy, shiny topic. I'm glad you're all here. (laughs) But the truth is we all have stuff in our lives. Right? We all have some form of pain, some form of suffering, some form of struggle that's going on pretty much at any time in our lives. And perspective is a wonderful thing. Because I think we too often we set this bar of normalcy as being apart from that. There's an uh, Episcopal priest by the name of Heidi Haverkamp. And she wrote, Too often we believe that to be normal is to be happy, carefree, healthy, and successful. But all of Scripture can witness that this is not the case to be normal is to struggle it's a very important kind of baseline to say that having some form of struggle in our life is pretty much the normal state of things and yet we keep wanting to think well if i can just get through this thing and be happy and carefree and successful that'll be the normal that'll be the life that's that'll be i can finally be happy then and if you set that as the goal boy you're set yourself up for a bunch of problems right but that's not to say that everybody's stuff is always dramatically horrible, right? We, we, we point this out all the time. Well, it could always be worse. And yeah, if you look around the world and you look at other people's struggles and pain and suffering and what they're going through, you can f- probably find most of the time somebody that has it worse than you, especially in our cultural context. But that's a trap as well because that leads us into thinking that our stuff doesn't matter, but it does. The pain and the suffering and the struggles that we have count. They mean something it can be really, really hard and complex and draining and all of the things, even if somebody else's stuff happens to be worse than ours. So as most things, it's a balance of not trying to say, well, we just don't have any problems at all because happiness is the normalcy in between saying our stuff doesn't matter because other people's stuff is worse. So 1 Peter, this passage in 1 Peter basically addresses this question of pain and suffering and struggle and how do we approach it as resurrection people. It approaches that from the context of political uh, uh, persecution. We believe that the letter was written while Peter was in Rome, and of course Peter's eventually executed in Rome as a political prisoner. And he wrote it to a set of churches in Asia Minor, which if you can picture the Mediterranean map in your mind is modern-day Turkey, that area of the world is Asia Minor, which in that time and place was ruled by Rome which in that time and place meant persecution for Christians. So Peter writes this letter to these churches both to affirm their pain and suffering, to offer them guidance on how to get through it, and to remind them of the fundamental truth that in light of Christ's death and resurrection, in the end, God wins. And those that follow God will be treated as faithful servants. That's the idea of the letter. And even though, like I said, that this letter was written in this context of political persecution, I want to suggest that some of the things that Peter is trying to draw out, some of the guidance, some of the affirmations, some of the things Peter is offering, apply to anybody in any context of pain and suffering and struggle. So there's some points we can draw out of this text, three main points that I want to try and draw out here this afternoon. And the first point is, and this is actually, to me, probably the most important thing I'm going to say today. So if you get nothing else, if you take nothing else away from the next 20 minutes or so, circle this, underline this, highlight this, throw some exclamation points on the end, whatever you've got to do. But this simple truth must be preached and it must be repeated. God does not cause pain and suffering. Period. Paragraph. Have a good Sunday, everybody. God does not cause pain and suffering. How do we know this? Well, let's start with this passage from Peter. If you look at chapter 5, verse 7, there, it tells us that it calls on us to cast our anxiety onto God because God cares for us. Now ask yourselves think of somebody that you care about deeply. Have you ever purposefully and maliciously caused that person pain and suffering? Wait a minute. Yeah, right? Well, maybe. Maybe as a mistake. When we screw up, we cause other people pain and suffering, even those that we care about. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't have the, "Eh, well, maybe moment. So it's logical to say that an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good God would not purposefully, maliciously cause pain and suffering. That's a logical thing. But it filters throughout all of Scripture. It's not just that passage. It's not just that logical thread. If we look at other passages in Scripture, in the Exodus story, chapter 3, it's written, Then the Lord says, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering. The arc of the Exodus story, God hearing the cry of His people, God rescuing His people, God bringing His people to the promised land, that arc repeats throughout Scripture over and over and over again, throughout history, over and over and over again. God does not cause pain and suffering. God rescues people from pain and suffering. Amen. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 49 says, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. God does not cause pain and suffering. God has compassion for those who are experience pain and suffering. The entirety of the book of Job, the entirety of that book, is about the complexity of where pain and suffering come from and what sustains pain and suffering. But you get through that book and you realize God isn't the cause. We'll discuss that a little bit later again. But God does not cause pain and suffering, period. Now there are Christians well-meaning and well-intentioned Christians, (laughs) who will tell you that if you say that God doesn't cause uh, pain and suffering, that you are actually undercutting God's sovereignty. That if God is all-powerful, that means God causes everything. That means everything that's ever happened was part of God's plan all along. But when you take that thought to its logical extreme, that means God's caused every bit of cancer, every bit of genetic disease, every bit of human violence that there's ever been, the Holocaust. God planned the Holocaust. That's what that means. Really? And the kind of mental gymnastics that you have to do to say that an all-good, all-loving God, Jesus on the cross sacrificing himself for us, also planned that. I can't get there. I just can't. And more importantly, I don't think we have to. I think the point that those folks miss is choice. That the God that sacrificed Himself for us on the the cross, the God that gave up His life on the cross, is the God that gave up a little bit of God's power at the time of creation so that we, His human partners, would have choice, would have agency, would have the ability to affect the world around us in partnership with God. The risk there being when you give free agents, a choice, we often make bad choices, and that helps create pain, and that helps create suffering. But the risk, in God's estimation, is worth the reward if we're willing to trust in God's plan. Which then, you know, brings up the question, well, if if God gives us choice, why doesn't God step in when we're going to make bad choices? Why can't God just sort of short-circuit that, Right? The trouble is, if you only have the option to pick the good thing and God's going to stop you every time you're going to pick the bad thing, you're not really choosing anything. And you're also losing out on the opportunity with those mistakes to grow and to improve. And it's complex and it's difficult, but God can't just stop in every time we're going to make a bad choice. That's just not the reality that God created. Well, if it's not God, if God doesn't cause pain and suffering, then who is it? Who do we point the finger at? Who do we blame? I mean, I just talked about choices, and we don't always make great ones. So in part, it's kind of us. Kind of. But Peter points us to another suspect as well. If we go to chapter 5, verse 8, in that second portion of today's scripture, Peter writes, Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. The devil. I don't often use that term. I usually say the enemy. Because I think when you start saying Satan and the devil, that conjures up all kinds of cartoonish images. Of red demons with pitchforks and horns. And that takes us away from the very nature of incarnate evil, which is a real thing, which is absolutely a real thing. Remember, again, I referenced the beginning of the book of Job. If you remember the beginning of the book of Job, there's this divine council having a conversation. And it isn't God that causes all the calamities that happen to Job, it's a character called the accuser. The Hebrew there is Hasatan. That's who causes the problems for Job. That's who causes Job's pain. That's who causes Job's suffering. Now, Job and his friends have no idea that this character even exists. So they spend the bulk of this book arguing with each other about why God caused all these calamities. And that brings God into the conversation where God has to show up and say, hey, guys, your whole paradigm is wrong. And worse, I can't really even explain to you the paradigm the way it actually is because our minds can't see the world, can't see creation the way God sees creation. So there becomes this element of mystery. There comes this element of blind trust that we have to have in God. But that's what he's telling Job and his friends. It's not, I'm not causing this, but I got you. Hang with me, we're gonna be okay. What I believe that enemy does, or wants more than anything, is to convince us that the choice that we have between a relationship with God and isolation and hopelessness away from God, that the latter half of that choice, that hopelessness and that isolation, the enemy wants us to believe that not only is that normal, that line of normalcy that I talked about earlier, not only is that normal, but it's almost inevitable. That's what the enemy wants to convince us of. Because if we buy into that, if we believe that hopelessness and isolation from God are a normal state or are inevitable, the amount of pain and the amount of suffering we can cause each other are exponential. If anybody's ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, it's a very playful take on this, but it's essentially a conversation between two of Satan's minions where they discuss that that's the goal. If we can just get people to believe that lie, because it perpetuates itself. The more pain and suffering we as individuals cause, the more we cause other people to buy into that lie of hopelessness and that lie of isolation. And it just sustains itself and keeps going and going and going. And as Christians, one of the things we need to do is break that cycle. Because that is a lie. The idea that that hopelessness and that isolation are inevitable is a lie, period, paragraph. There's always hope, and we're never alone. God does not cause pain and suffering. First point. Second point. If God doesn't cause pain and suffering, why does God allow pain and suffering? Which is an excellent question, but I really wish you hadn't asked it. (laughs) It's true though, because it's a a question that keeps, I think that question keeps more people away from faith than any other question. Why does an all good, all loving, all powerful God allow pain, allow suffering, allow evil to exist? Can that God not stop it? In which case, not all powerful. Does that God choose not to stop it? In which case, it's really hard to see that God is all good and all loving. That's the binary that people will set up in opposition to faith. I will caution you. Anytime somebody wants to reduce something to a binary, red flags and alarm bells should be going off. That's a problem. Because that's an oversimplification of how life works. Nine times out of ten. That's a problem. There are many attempts to try and answer that question. That idea of choice and God allowing us to choose even if we're going to choose poorly is an attempt to try and answer that question. The fancy seminary term there is a theodicy. There won't be that won't be on the quiz later. But there are plenty of theodicies out there. There are plenty of atten- attempts to answer that question. And the truth is that the true answer to that probably lies in some, and probably lies in and beyond some combination of all of those different answers. But at the end of the day, when you're in the thick of it, when you're in the meat grinder, when you're in that pain and that suffering. A bunch of fancy academic and philosophical ideas and terms don't help at all. They just don't. That's not what you need to hear in that moment. And so, our friends, there really isn't an answer that's going to help you to that question that's going to help you in that moment. So, our friends who are not of faith will say, well, then what's the point of faith at all? If you can't answer that question with an all powerful God, then what are we even doing? The trouble is that even though Christianity and pretty much any faith don't have great answers to that particular question, you know who has a worse answer? Atheism. Because atheism tells you that it's all just random dumb luck. That the only thing protecting you as you walk out the door here today is chance. And if you want to think about something and meditate on something that's going to lead you to a place of hopelessness and isolation, there you go. Faith might not have a great answer to that question, but I believe a lack of faith has a much worse answer to that question. That's my opinion. So if that's not a useful question, if asking why God allows evil to exist is not a useful question, then what is a useful question? What can we turn to in a moment of pain and suffering? What's going to actually help us? I believe the question that we need to ask ourselves in that moment is, what is God doing about pain and about suffering? That's a much more useful question. So let's turn back to Peter for a moment. Again, looking at that verse 7 of chapter 5. God is prepared to take on our anxiety. Just as God took on our sin on the cross, God wants us to bring to God that pain and that suffering and that struggle and lift it up and let God help carry that burden directly from God and through our community. That's how God works best is with and through us. We don't have to carry that stuff alone. That's why we do pastoral prayer every week. We don't have to carry those things alone. God wants to help us bear that. God joins us in that pain. God joins us in that suffering. God wants to be part of it. I think back to John 11 all the time when I think of pain and suffering. John 11 is the story of Lazarus being raised. I've preached on this before, and if it sounds repetitive, good. Good. But in that moment, as Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he looks around and he observes all of these people who are in grief and in pain and in suffering because they've lost their brother, they've lost their friend. And as he knows that he's about to raise Lazarus, he knows he's about to take all that grief and pain and suffering and turn it into joy and celebration. But before he does that, he stops, and there's this very short verse in John 11 that says, and he wept. Why? 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 If this is about to become a joyous situation, why is Jesus weeping? I think Jesus weeps in that moment because God needs us to know that in the meat grinder, in the worst of it, in the thick of it, in our grief, in our pain, in our suffering, God has been there and God wants to join us in that moment. God wants to help us carry that burden. We are not alone. We are never, ever alone. So what is God doing about it? God's trying to join us with it. God's trying to help us carry that burden. And God's trying to bring good out of it. God always acts and works with us, it says in Romans 8.28, to bring good out of evil, good out of pain, good out of suffering. It's a bit of a dramatic example, but I'll tell you a quick story. Some of you will remember there was a young man by the name of DeMar Hamlin who was a football player for the Buffalo Bills. And this past winter, in the midst of a Monday night football game, DeMar got hit in what looked like a completely innocuous play. You've seen a thousand of these hits if you've ever watched football games. But in this particular situation, DeMar got hit in exactly the right place, or wrong place, I should say, at exactly the wrong time, and his heart stopped on the field. In medical terms, he died on the field and had to be resuscitated. And he actually died twice because his heart stopped again in the ambulance ride to the hospital. Once they finally got him resuscitated and got him into an ambulance and were driving him to the hospital, his heart stopped again and they had to resuscitate him again. And 60,000 people in this stadium and and people and players and coaches and millions of people watching on TV around the world think that they may have just watched a player die. We're trying to entertain ourselves and we suddenly find ourselves in a life-or-death situation. And that throws you for a loop. If you have any humanity in you, that's going to throw you for a loop. And so people are trying to wrestle with this. The announcers are trying to wrestle with this. What do we do? How do we talk about this? What's going on? And then something strange happens. Uh, Two years before this, DeMar had set up a GoFundMe page because he was trying to raise money to buy toys for inner-city kids in Buffalo. And if you looked at the GoFundMe page, it said it was trying to raise $20,000, $30,000, which isn't nothing. But in NFL salary terms, also isn't a ton of money, right? But he's trying to raise some money, buy some toys for kids around Christmas, great idea. Somebody found this link as we're sitting here trying to process this potential tragedy. Somebody found that link and started sharing it on social media. And it blew up. And at last check, that fund had over $9 million in it. Because people needed to do something. In the midst of this potential tragedy, people just wanted to act. People wanted to help. People wanted to do something. And so there was all this good. There's now, first of all, DeMar's completely recovered, and it's been cleared to play football again, which is incredible if you think about it. And he's now got a foundation with a $9 million base to do a whole lot more than just buy toys for those kids around Christmas. When there's pain, where there is suffering, where there's struggle, God steps in and acts. And acts with and through us. That is what God is doing about pain and suffering. Which then leaves us with the question what do we do? If that's what God is doing, what do we do about pain and suffering as resurrection people? This is our third point. The first portion of our passage here says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It says in that second portion that your brothers and sisters all over the world are experiencing similar suffering. We are not alone. We said it right off the top. We all have our stuff. We all have stuff. And there is comfort in numbers. There is comfort and strength in community. When you are in that meat grinder, when you are in that valley of the shadow of death, what you need is not academic terms and answers. What you need is your people to show up and be there for you. And the corollary to that is that as resurrection people, we need to have our eyes and our ears and our hearts open so that when we see our brothers and sisters in need, when we see people that are in the meat grinder that are suffering, that are experiencing pain, that are struggling, we are prepared to act That's why there's a benevolence fund here at Genesis. That's why there's a care team here at Genesis. That's why there's a prayer team here at Genesis. Because we want to be ready to act when our brothers and sisters need help. And it can often be really, really difficult to raise your hand and say, I'm struggling, I need help. But if you understand that on some level we're all going through it, and we're all here to help each other, that becomes a whole lot easier. The second portion also tells us in in verse 6 there of chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humility here having the meaning of trust. Trusting in God. Trusting that the God that used his pain and his suffering on the cross to defeat evil, to rescue us from ultimate death, can use our pain and use our suffering to bring about a little bit of good in the world. If that pain and suffering have to be there, then then God wants to help us use it to turn that to good. Trusting in God that God can do that. And trusting that as the, the, again, verse 10 tells us, that God, that God, same God, will ultimately restore, support, strengthen, and establish us. Now here's the rub. Neither of those things, understanding that we're not alone and having our people around us and trusting in God, neither of those things will immediately eliminate our pain and our suffering. And the hard truth is that should not be our goal. That Episcopal priest I quoted earlier, Heidi Haverkamp, says it this way. Suffering is something we want to first fix or eliminate. But suffering and rejection are where we can learn compassion and vulnerability. And both are needed to create true relationship with people and with God. Genesis, again, it comes back to relationship. The key to living as resurrection people in the face of pain and in the face of suffering is relationship. Relationship with each other for support, for solidarity, and relationship with God in trust and in humility. That's the key. God does not cause pain and suffering, period. Matthew chapter 13 says, this an enemy has done. God does not cause pain and suffering. And fixating on why God allows pain and suffering, while that's a natural response, doesn't really get us a whole lot of anywhere. Looking for what God is doing about it and what God is asking us to do about it, that moves us forward. That helps us get through that pain and that suffering. So as resurrection people, we are called. We are called to be there for each other with the kind of radical, self-sacrificial love that Christ showed for us on the cross. And we are called to trust in God's promises of renewal, resurrection, and restoration. That's who we are called to be as resurrection people. People in relationship with each other. People who are ready to help others outside of our community. People who understand that pain and suffering is universal. But that in the end, God wins. Amen? Amen.